Thank you for tuning in to the Graceway Sermon Cast. Graceway is a church located in Lexington, Kentucky, with a heart for God and a vision for the gospel. I'm Derek Holmes, lead pastor. So grab your Bibles and let's hear from the Word. How many of you have seen Star Wars? How many Star Wars fans? How many of you have seen the new Star Wars yet? A lot of people have been saying about, oh, I don't know if they ended it the right way because it's supposed to be the last, you know, the last of the Skywalker saga. Did they end it the right way? Was it good enough to be the end of this long 40-year uh, saga that has taken place? And I think it was pretty good. But I think that we're so, um, we're so enraptured by having happy endings and having nice, neat little stories that we can wrap up and put bows on and say, hey, this is beautiful. And that's what we kind of do with our Christmas stories as well. We get these warm, fuzzy feelings about something that was less than warm and fuzzy. And that's what this series has kind of been about. And think about even uh, some, of the, uh, some of the things that we've looked at so far. We've, Matthew gives us, he starts out with this crazy, messed up, broken down, dysfunctional family tree, right? That included all kinds of mess in it. There were murderers, there was, there was murder for hire plots, there was prostitution, there was, um, you know, uh, people having babies by their father-in-laws. There was all kinds of mess in the family line that brought us the Messiah, it doesn't seem to be like a nice, neat little story. And then last week we looked at the chaos that must have been Mary and Joseph's life, not just the moment leading up to the birth, but their life after that too. Being, uh, being in a culture that was very strict and very legalist and everybody looked at them and thought, you had a baby out of wedlock and Joseph, if, if it's your baby, why didn't you wait for the betrothal period? And so they were marked by sin. Joseph had to give up his business as a carpenter. He had to give up the home that he had built for Mary to go to Egypt. Nothing was simple for them to bring Jesus around so that we could have eternal life. And so I think that tells us something, though, because how many of you have noticed in your life as a follower of Christ that sometimes it's just not simple? Sometimes you can't just wrap up and put a nice, neat little bow on your life as a follower of Jesus. Because we can't. And I think sometimes we blindly get this idea that if things are not working out perfectly and if things are not working out ideal, that's evidence that God is not happy with me. But here's the thing. When we look through Scripture, we see that God was pleased with people. The Bible says God's favor dwelt, among, dwelt on Mary among all women, yet her life was chaotic. So I want to give you a little bit of hope this morning. If your life doesn't seem to make sense right now, and the only thing you can point to and say that Jesus has not let me down, and the only thing you can point to in your life that gives you stability is Jesus, you're living right. You're living right. Because that's what the message that we get from Christmas. The only way that our lives can make sense is when Jesus is inserted into it. So I think we miss in these familiar passages, and we also still were stuck with questions a lot of times. Today, we're going to be looking at the, at the Magi and the fact that they came from, uh, came from the East and the gifts that they give, and we have all of these amazing stories and these amazing ideas about from that, and there's movies made, and there's nativity sets with the Magi there, and I'm going to blow all that up today, all right? And I believe this passage we're going to look at this morning goes a little bit deeper than just explaining a nativity scene. It goes deeper into understanding and to answering some of the deepest questions that we have about faith and how we wrestle with our faith in the world. So have you ever had, ever had like tough questions like this? Like, how can, we, how can we believe there's a God when the world seems to be so chaotic, when it seems to be so broken? Where is God when something unspeakable and tragic happens like a school shooting or a natural catastrophe? Where is God in a world where the innocent seem to be oppressed or the seemingly innocent seem to be oppressed and taken advantage of? If Christianity is true, then why don't all the smart, trusted people in the world automatically agree on it? 
Why does my teacher or my professor at, at, at school, why, don't, why do they ridicule it? Why do my friends think that I'm crazy for being a believer? Or what about all the people in the world who are not Christians? How does God truly see those who don't believe him? And if God is true and if God is the way, why doesn't he automatically just make everyone believe in him? Those are questions that I've struggled with through my faith. I don't know about you. Maybe you have those same questions too. But I believe in this passage, we see the answers to a lot of those questions because the passage that we read, we often, since we're so familiar with it, we become apathetic to the deep, to the deep understanding of what's taking place. So we have misconceptions. So let's look again at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. And this time uh, I read from the, the King James earlier. I'm going to read now from the Christian Standard Bible. It says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising, and we have come to worship him. And when King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed, and all of Jerusalem with him. You see, we have a lot of misconceptions that we pull out, or we don't go deep enough to understand exactly what was going on. See, we romanticize. Think about some of our Christmas carols that we sing. Like, Silent Night, Holy Night, All is Calm, All is Bright. And for many of you, that may be a favorite carol, and it's a beautiful carol. I'm not disrupting the carol, but... If you've ever been present for the birth of a child, I've been present for the birth of two children, and even with an epidural, it's not a silent night. It's not a holy night. All is not calm. All is not bright. Can I get a witness, ladies? I mean, I haven't given birth, but I've been there, and I can just imagine how bad it was for Stacy. Right? It just doesn't make sense. We're talking about the birth of a baby, and not the birth of a baby in a hospital with painkillers. We're talking about the birth of a baby in a barn without painkillers, having ridden 90 miles on a camel or a donkey. That's not a calm night, folks. But we make it romantic and we make it it beautiful, don't we? Or think about away in a manger. Think about the line of this. The cattle are lowing, the poor baby wakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. If you've just given birth to a baby and the only place you can lay them is in a pig trough, in a barn where there's animals everywhere... It doesn't smell like baby powder. I'm just going to leave it there. And the baby has finally gotten to sleep after a rough night. And all of a sudden, it's awakened by the sound of a a cow mooing in its face. That baby, it is not going to be the situation of no crying he makes. He's going to cry. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. So yes, he did probably cry. Like, what is this cow in my face? (laughs) It's just... It's just amazing how we do it. And, and, and let, me, let me go one more. I don't want to mess up your nativity sets. I've done this before. Hopefully some of you have corrected this problem. But the wise men, contrary to popular belief, were not actually at the manger. They did not show up probably for another six to seven months. When they saw the star, the star got them started, but it wasn't until Jesus was born. So what I've done at home, because, you know, I'm a preacher and the spiritual leader of my home, so we need to be biblically accurate. I've taken the wise men out and I've put them somewhere else in the house, you know, somewhere farther away. So if you really want to be biblically accurate, have your nativity out. Don't bring the wise men out until June or July, okay? And then have Christmas part two and everything will be good, right? The other thing that we oftentimes misconstrue is we think that there were only three wise men. And that's understandable because the three gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. But the truth is that these guys were really high up nobility. They were powerful. They were wise. They had people that served them. They had people that attended to them. They had staff. They had all of this. They had families as well. And so more than likely, when they came, they had a caravan of people. It was at least a dozen people 
if they were being simple. It was at least a dozen of them that came. And we know this too because in verse number three, it says that the entire city was disturbed and the entire city was troubled because of their arrival. Three guys showing up on a camel is not going to mess up Jerusalem, but a bunch of people showing up is going to cause a stir. The Bible tells us that they were astrologers. The Bible says too that they came from the east which means they probably came from around Persia, the Mesopotamian area. Uh, Eastern astrologers originated centuries before in, uh, in the, the Persian Empire area, which was also Babylon, which was, uh, we know as we study through the Old Testament, that Babylon was the empire that took Israel into captivity and carried them off into exile. Well, while part of the time that the Israelites were there, uh, Persia conquered Babylon, so it ended up being two empires taking, uh, taking over. And they were well-respected, they were rich, they were part of the Persian priesthood and ruling class. So the question is, how did they determine that this star in the sky would lead to the Messiah? How in the world would they know this? Well, God had been working in, through all of this. Even through the exile of Israel, God was working to bring this moment into place. Because when people like the prophets and when people like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were taken into captivity, they didn't give up their Jewish heritage and the study of scriptures. So Daniel was noted to be one of the Magi. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were mentioned to be part of the wise men that were, even though they were Hebrew people, they were adopted by Persia and by Babylon to be wise men and counselors to the kings. And so the Bible tells us that Daniel brought in the prophecies, the writings of Moses and the prophecies of Scripture. And they were used by the wise men and the magi as they studied. And so the writings of Moses, the prophecies of Isaiah and all of these people were, were studied by all of these magi, even though, even though they were over in the east and in a pagan area. In number, numbers, verse, numbers 23, one of the things that they would have known through the writings of Moses was a story of a man named Balaam. Balaam was, uh, Balaam was a prophet, but he wasn't a very good one because there was an enemy king named Balak who uh, feared that Israel was becoming stronger as he was trying to oppress them. And so he hires this prophet named Balaam to prophesy a curse over Israel. He wanted to hold Israel down, and so he calls on God's man, and he says, I want you to call on your God to curse Israel. Balaam was not a very faithful prophet to God because Balak basically named his right price. I'm going to pay you all this money. And so Balaam said, you know what? You named your price. I'll go and I'll pronounce the curse. And as he's going to the people to pronounce the curse, God doesn't want that to take place. So he sends an angel. And this is not just a really nice little angel that sang, that sang, the choirs, that sang over the choirs that night in Bethlehem. This is a fierce warrior angel who has a sword in his hand. And as Balaam is riding on his trusty donkey that had been with him for his whole life, the donkey sees the angel, but Balaam doesn't. And so the donkey gets scared and veers off the road into a field. Balaam gets mad and starts to beat his donkey. The, donkey the, the angel finally turns away and walks away, and the donkey sees that, and so he gets back on the road and starts going his way. A little bit further down the road, as Balaam is, as Balaam is still riding his donkey, trying to get over there to do what Balak had asked him to do, the angel shows back up. This time, it's by a vineyard, and there are two walls that are on either side of the road. And as the angel shows up, Balaam still doesn't see it, but the donkey does. The donkey begins to veer off to try to go around uh, because he can't go off into the field. He has to try to go around. And as he does, he scrapes Balaam's foot against the wall and crushes Balaam's foot. Balaam gets mad. He starts to beat his donkey again. The Bible says he starts to cuss him out and all this stuff. And he's mad. He's hurt. He still doesn't see the angel. He doesn't know what's wrong with his donkey, but they keep on going anyway. The third time, 
the angel shows up again. And the Bible says it's in a very narrow place. Picture like an alley that barely you can fit through as a sho- as your shoulder width. And the Bible says the angel shows up again and the donkey sees it and realizes, I can't go around, I can't go above. So what does the donkey do? The donkey just sits down with Balaam sitting on top of it. By that time, Balaam is livid. He's like, what is wrong with you? You have been messing up all day. I'm getting ready to trade you in for a newer model. But he starts beating it and beating it and would have beat it to death. But then God speaks through the donkey. All right, now let's look at what happens here. Here's what the Bible says. This is amazing. In verse number 28 of Numbers 22, it says, The Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she asked Balaam, What have I done to you that you have beaten me these three times? And Balaam answered the donkey, you made me look like a fool. Note that Balaam doesn't stop and think, why am I talking to a donkey? (laughs) This is how done Balaam is. He's like, dude, right? Balaam says, why? And, And Balaam says, you made me look like a fool. And he says, if I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you now. And this part is awesome. But the donkey says, am I not the donkey that you've ridden all your life until today? And have I ever treated you this way before? And the Bible says, he just says, well, no. He's reasoning with a donkey, and he's losing the argument. Okay? All of a sudden, God opens Balaam's eyes to see the angel, and he realizes that the reason his donkey kept straying was not because of rebellion to his master, but because he was loyally trying to protect his master. And so instead of cursing Israel, he prophesies a blessing over them. And here's part of the blessing in Numbers 24, verse 17. It says this, a star, and it becomes a prophetic blessing. He says, a star will come from Jacob. And a scepter will arise from Israel. It means this, that a king would rule the whole world and bring blessings to all the nations on the earth. And a blessing will come to all of those nations on the earth. So when these wise men from Persia see this star, it reminds them of this prophecy. Daniel had brought this prophecy there. They had read this prophecy. It had been a tradition of them to study the Hebrew writings in their search for wisdom. And when they see this star come up, they see this cosmic event that normally doesn't happen take place. They remember the Bible said that there would be a star rising in Jerusalem and he would save all of the people. And so at that moment, the Magi say the best place for us to be is at this place. So they got themselves to Jerusalem. And here's the beautiful thing about the Magi that we have to get. It wasn't enough to just know where the Messiah was. They wanted to be where the Messiah was. That's a great lesson for us as we follow. It's it's one thing for us to know where Jesus is. It's one thing to know about him. It's one thing to know his stories. But we need to be as close to him as we possibly can. It wasn't just to know his location. They wanted to be in his location and drawn to him too. But then there's another player in the story. His name is Herod. The Bible tells us about Herod. The Bible just says it was in the days of King Herod. Now for us, we should, okay, Herod was over the, the thing. But for a Jewish ruler, they remember Herod. Anybody remember the name Hitler? Okay, that's kind of the way people responded when they heard the name Herod in the Jewish culture. Herod was the most wicked king that had ever ruled over Jerusalem and over Judah at that time. Most people know that Herod was a bad guy, but history records that he wasn't just bad, he was evil. He was like Hitler unchecked by the Allied forces. There was no one that was going to stand in his way. Some of the things that he did, and he, was, he just had all these character flaws. First of all, he was really ostentatious, and he was really into making himself look good and looking powerful. He built these huge showy palaces all over the place. Because he needed you know, more than one palace. It wasn't enough just to have one. He had to have as many of them as he possibly can. And on the palaces, he made sure that his name was written all over them. 
In the Bible, we see the story of David as he was running from King Saul. He found safety in this place called Masada that David had to climb into in a cave that he hid out in there. And so here's what Herod thought in his arrogance. He thought, well, if David, who was known to be the greatest king, but we all know I'm the greatest king, if David was able to hide out there, I'm going to build a palace fortress there and I'm going to live there in luxury. So if David was able to live there in exile, I'm going to live there in luxury just to prove that I'm the greatest. And he had cisterns and wells and stuff that collected water, and he had running plumbing and all those things going on in there. He also figured out how to preserve food. There were dates and figs that he had in these storerooms. And in the 1940s, archaeologists actually found some of Herod's storerooms and still found dates and figs still in there, and they were still preserved. And so some of the archaeologists on a bet, they decided they were going to taste it, and they all of a sudden realized, well, it wasn't preserved for 2,000 years. Interestingly enough, the ones that tried the dates and figs and tried to stay healthy, uh, they got sick. But the ones who ate Herod's Twinkies, they were fine, right? Because Twinkies last forever. You know, they, they, don't have a, they, don't have a, they don't have an expiration date or anything. He was also paranoid about losing his power. We know the story about what Herod did with the babies. But what Herod did before that is awful as well. Herod had his own wife killed because he thought that she was conspiring against him. And for good measure, he went ahead and had her mother killed and all of her sons too. Then, for, uh, then after that, three years later, he had all three of his, son, of his son's sons killed. So all three of his grandchildren were killed for the same reason. And when he was coronated as king, here's what he did. He invited all of his family's enemies to this big party. And then as they were all in the room, he shut the door and he had all of them executed. This guy was a maniacal maniac. Emperor Augustus said this. He said it would be better for Herod's pig. It would be better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be one of his sons. He was known to dress like a commoner and go into the city just to hear what people were saying about him. And then he had special forces that if he heard anything negative, they would go out and they would kill those people who said anything about him. When he was on his deathbed, he declared and decreed that the moment of his death, nobles and representatives from all throughout the land were to be killed as well. Because he knew that no one would mourn his loss and he wanted the nation to go into mourning. So he had to have good people killed in his stead so that everybody would mourn. Thankfully, that didn't happen. Probably one of the worst things he did is in building all these palaces, it bankrupted the country. And so what he did was he went out and he found the 45 wealthiest families in the area and he had them all executed, and he seized all of the assets. And that's a guy that really sticks it to the 1%, right? This is the evil kind of man that we're dealing with. This is the evil that Israel was living under when Jesus came into the world. He only cared about his own prosperity. He was terrible. So as we look at verse number 4, this is the idea that we have to keep in mind of what's behind Herod's, what Herod is thinking. He assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people, and he asked them, where the Christ would be born. And this part's really interesting. It says, in Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what the, was written by the prophet, and this is a prophecy in verse number six. It comes from Micah chapter five. He says, and you, Bethlehem in the land of Judea, who are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will, become a, will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now that's where you would expect the next verse to say, and all the people, all the counselors, everybody packed up their stuff and said, let's get to Bethlehem and find this king, this Messiah. But their reaction is not that. They don't do anything. They're apathetic. They don't pay attention because look at what it says in verse number seven. Then Herod secretly summons the wise men and asks them the exact time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and he said, go and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and that I can worship him. But the question is, does he really want to worship Jesus? No. 
He feigns worship. He pretends worship, but he wants to secure his own supremacy. The only reason he wants to come close to Jesus is to kill him. That teaches us sometimes we can have the heart of Herod. Sometimes we pretend worship, but we're only doing it because it advances our ideas and our, our agenda. True worship of Jesus means I must sacrifice and humble myself before God and let him speak to me. But Herod was not going to do that. After hearing the king in verse number nine, he went on their, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen at its rising and led, led them until they came and stopped above the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. And entering into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned, the, they returned to their own country by another route. I said at the beginning of this passage that some of the answers to life's toughest questions, some of the answers and some of the things that we have to understand as believers today are located in this passage. And so I want to look at four things this morning. Number one is this, is that the gospel is for the nations. One of the questions I asked was, what does God think about all the people who don't know him? Well, he wants the gospel to go to them. And he chooses his people to take it to them. See, all four gospels tell the same story, but they tell it to different audiences. Matthew's gospel was to the Jewish audience and uh, Jesus, that Jesus was the promised Messiah and King that they had been waiting for. The problem is that the Jews were extremely nationalistic. They were a people that had been through oppression. They'd been through exile. They'd had people bring them, uh, bring them away from their homeland. Now they were under oppression by the Roman government. So they were really tight with one another and they were skeptical of anyone else that wasn't of Jewish lineage. On top of the fact that they had an arrogance of being God's chosen people. So they were skeptical of anyone else. And what I find interesting is Matthew says to the Jewish people, the people that God invited to see baby Jesus, to worship him first, were people from the east. And not just people from the east, but people who didn't necessarily believe in God. Matthew is driving a point home that the gospel is for everyone. Not just for one set of people, not just for one segment of people. And then if the nations are to come to Christ, they are to come to him the same way, by faith in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is not just an American Savior. Jesus is not just a Jewish Savior. He is the Savior. That the only way that we're going to have hope in this world is through Jesus Christ. The same hope of salvation for me living in Lexington, Kentucky in 2019 is the same hope of salvation for someone living on the other side of the planet in 3000, if the Lord tarries, A.D. They're going to still come to salvation through Jesus Christ. And that is beautiful and that is wonderful and that's what bonds all of us together. Black, white, red, yellow. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter what flag you live under. We fall under the banner of Jesus Christ. So Matthew writes this book declaring the king of kings, the, Jews, uh, the king of the Jews is Jesus and among the first people to worship him are pagan wise men. Jesus wasn't a Jewish savior like I said. He is the only savior. And what's beautiful is when you turn over to Matthew chapter 28, the very end, the last two verses are what? The great commission that tell us to go to the nations to share the gospel. So at the beginning of Matthew's book, he invites people to come from the nations to come to Jesus. Now he tells us as believers to go to the nations and tell them about Jesus. So here's the question. I want you to personalize this and understand as you hear these statistics this morning. We love the message of Christmas, but the fact is that 2019 Christmases have come and soon will be gone, but yet there are still 6,000 unreached people groups in this world who not only don't know the story of Christmas, they don't know the name of Jesus. 1.4348 billion people in the world with no access to the gospel. 
Three billion people have very little access to it. And the only access they can have is if someone takes the, takes the time to learn their language, to come to them with the gospel in their language so that they can hear it and to translate the word in their language. So I want to challenge you this morning. You hear those numbers? Those are staggering numbers. Don't just hear that number and go, wow, man, somebody needs to do something about it. Because a need seen is an assignment given. We all have a role in that, to give, to help. But also, we don't make enough about this to go and to have a part. God may be calling some of you to go, maybe short-term, maybe long-term, but to literally take the gospel to others, because that's the command. The beginning when Jesus came was, all come to Jesus. Now, the command is for Jesus' children to go to all. The second thing that we see after we see that the gospel is for the nations, we see that God moves the universe to accomplish his purpose. This is kind of a repeat of what we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Because remember, he moved the entire Roman Empire to, back to their hometown through the census. He moved the emperor to have a census to cause everybody to go back to their own hometown to be taxed, only to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem to fulfill one little prophecy out of thousands of prophecies about the Messiah. Why didn't God just show up through an angel in a dream to Joseph and say, hey, take, take Mary to Bethlehem so that this prophecy can work out? Because it shows us that God has sovereign power over everything. And even when it doesn't make sense, God is making sense of it. And God has a plan in everything that he is doing. The, this is Matthew's way of showing us that God has no problem with what goes on in the world. That he is in utter and total control. And even in the mess, God is bringing beauty out of all of it. He moved the stars just to get the wise men to Jesus. But you see, what happened was God wanted pagan sorcerers to be among the first to worship Christ at his birthday party to make a point that he can also commandeer the constellations and the universe and the galaxies just to bring them there. He controls the heavens, he speaks through donkeys, and he can manipulate governments to accomplish his will. And that means that there is not one square inch of this universe or your world that God does not have sovereign control. So what we get from that is we can trust him. He can be trusted, folks. All things work together for good. To them that love God, to them that are the called according to his purpose. And I love what Pastor David Platt says. He said, the same God who sovereignly arranged all of the stars in the sky, sovereignly arranges every single detail in your life. And he can be trusted. See, in the worst chapters of your life, God was there. When you tried to pick up the pen and write the story yourself, thinking, I know more than God, God was there, and he said, you can write it, and I'm going to blot that out through the blood of my son, Jesus Christ. And if you will come to me, I will make things right. I will turn your ashes into beauty, the word says. You can be still and rest and know that he's in control of every detail of your life because all things work together for good. His followers, he has chosen that they will be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus Christ. Everything that is taking place, you have to believe this as a follower of God, everything that is taking place, God is using to conform you to the image of his son. That's how we, appro that's how we approach the things in our life. If we approach difficulty as just difficulty, we're going to get exhausted. But if we approach difficulty as God working to conform us to the image of his son and he has a plan through that, all of a sudden there becomes a purpose even in our suffering. And the other thing that we learn, thirdly, is that true wisdom is upside down from what the world thinks is wisdom. True wisdom is upside down from what this world thinks 
is wisdom. Scripture notes that these guys are wise men. This is to show us a couple things about the wisdom that are of our world compared to God's. First of all is that the wisdom of this world is basically just outdated. There is a shelf life on the wisdom of this world. Wise men were considered wise back then because they could read the stars and somehow that applied to their wisdom and it seems a little foolish today. But the thing about astrology, it's what's interesting, is it goes in and out of fashion over time, right? A hundred years ago, nobody like cared about like, you know, astrology. Nobody cared about that. They just looked at it as hocus pocus. About 30 years ago, it came back into fashion a little bit. And then people were saying, well, what's your sign? And what's, what's all this? It's starting to kind of wane again over time too. But it kind of just goes in and out of fashion because nothing's new under the sun. It just kind of recycles itself. But what seems wise about today, and understand this is a truth that we have to understand about, about mankind and about sociology, is what seems wise today will be ridiculed tomorrow. Sigmund Freud, the great psychologist of old, he's in and then he's out and then he's in and then he's out again, man. They just can't make up their mind. Was Sigmund right or was he wrong? Certain scientific theories, they're in and then they're out and then they're in and then they're out again over time. Eggs are bad for you, then they're good for you, then they're bad for you again, then they're good for you again. It's like, here's the thing. If you feel guilty and you feel like eggs are unhealthy at breakfast, don't worry. By dinner time, they'll be healthy for you again. And I think that's there for a reason. Because it shows us that through all of the changes and through all of the wisdom that comes in fashion and out of fashion, as, as time goes on, there is one bit of wisdom that is always true. Every time I pick up this Bible, I find truth in it that has never changed and is never going to change. The wisdom of this world pales in comparison and cannot hold a candle to the everlasting wisdom and the truth of God. The Bible teaches and bears this out, that man's wisdom will fade Man's wisdom will be revised. Man's wisdom will be challenged and critiqued and pushed down and brought back up again. But the only place that we can find wisdom that will never change and is forever settled is in his word. When I pick up this Bible, I'm dealing with ultimate truths about God and eternity and the core of which Christians for centuries have all believed consistently for thousands of years. C.S. Lewis said this, all that is not eternal is eternally out of date. We go in and out, but the word of God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And while these wise men and the things that they thought back then don't look all that wise, here's where they prove their eternal wisdom. The moment that they recognized that the world was spinning for the sake of Jesus, they became eternally wise. The moment they realized that none of this made sense without the Messiah, they became eternally wise. See, the wisdom of the word turns the wisdom of the world upside down. What makes sense in this kingdom here doesn't make sense in the kingdom up there. And so the question is, we can keep living our life by this kingdom standards and run ourselves ragged, or we can settle into the kingdoms of God or the kingdom of God and his standards and find peace in our lives. See, the wisdom of this world is also inadequate. How did the wise men exactly find Jesus? They saw the star, they saw the prophecy, and they're thinking, okay, we got to go find the king, but how did they find him? See, the star got them started, but what got them there? Where did they get the details? They went to the word of God. The details was in the truth. They went to the word and they saw that there will be a son that will come out of Jerusalem. So where did they go? They went to Jerusalem. And then they said, okay, where's the king? And they said, oh, he's over in Bethlehem. And so they went and they finally searched until they found him. They got it through the prophecy, through the word of God. Matthew is showing us that worldly wisdom is severely limited. I'm not saying that there's not wisdom in this world that is helpful, but the wisdom of this world is only helpful to diagnose the problem. 
The truth of God's word is what will give us the healing. It cannot give us the cure. The healing, the fixing is found in Christ. The wisdom of this world is also narrow and exclusive too, but the gospel welcomes everyone. You see, if you want to be considered to be wise and to be smart and to be in the know in our culture and in the world today, what do you have to do? You got to get a bunch of diplomas on your wall, right? You got to go to college. You got to go to the right school. You got to get an Ivy League. And you got to be in the know and in the circles. You got to be an expert in your field. And then you're considered to be a wise person because you're well-educated in your field. But that's very narrow and it's very exclusive, isn't it? Because not everybody can do that. Not everybody has equal opportunity towards that. But here's what the Word of God says. That anyone, anyone can come to the wisdom of the Word. Because he is making his word available to all. You look at Matthew's gospel and the picture of the worship of the baby Jesus includes wise men from the east. But when you look over to Luke, who does Luke highlight came to the birth of Jesus? Shepherds. Shepherds were the lowest class of the Jewish race. Nobody wanted to talk to them. They were no good. They went to school. They basically found out they didn't do very good on their ACTs. And they said, all you're really good for is to go and shepherd. So go out there and spend time with the, you're the dumbest of humans. Go out and spend time with the dumbest of animals. Keep track of them for us. And so who does God invite to the birth? The lowest of the low and the highest of the high. Why? He's teaching us something, folks. Not just so that we can have a cute nativity. That's, by the way, wrong. But anyway, not so that we have a nice nativity to set out. He's teaching us something, that the gospel reaches to the lowest of the low and to the highest of the high. And the wisdom of the gospel brings all people to equal standing because at the cross, all men are equal. We all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No matter how good you get, if you're still a sinner, you're still broken. The gospel is the most inclusive worldview ever put forth to humanity. You can't get more opposite ends of the spectrum than Eastern elite nobility and third-class citizens being given invitations to the presence of Jesus. It's highly significant that the first people to love Jesus are uneducated roughnecks, shepherds, pagan philosophers, the wise men, and also a poor young couple from an undesirable city of Nazareth who everyone else thought was in sin. See, because the gospel erases all of those things. The gospel turns the world's values upside down by making the basis for our acceptance before God his grace and mercy and not our own merit. Get that. Very, get that in, make sure that's important to you and understand this. The gospel turns the world's values upside down and it makes our credentials before God not based on our merits but based upon his grace and his mercy. There's not one thing that we can do to earn salvation. We must receive it as the gift that it is. And then lastly, Jesus is God's answer to evil and pain in our world. As you look down into verse, as you look down on through the rest of the chapter, you see the story that we often talk about but don't talk about very deeply, which is Herod's reaction to, um, to, the, uh, to the wise men not coming back. Herod waits and he waits and he waits and the wise men never come back. So Herod in his anger decrees that all baby boys in Bethlehem under the age of two should be slaughtered and killed. <laughs> How do you bring something pretty out of that kind of carnage? Why does the Bible put that in there and why did God allow that to happen? That's one thing. It's like, why did you allow this to happen? Why did this take place? 
is to show us once again that we cannot live on this physical plane and just anchor down in that. We have to see what God is doing along the way. There's great evil and there's great pain in Bethlehem, but it fulfilled another prophecy because God's answer to this was once all of that took place, God sent an angel to Joseph once again, and he says, all right, you've been faithful. You've, you've, you've married Mary. You've done all those things. You've given up everything. Now here's what you need to do. You need to take Mary and the boy, and you need to get to Egypt. Which, by the way, the gifts that the wise men ended up giving to them after they came ended up funding the entire journey. God knows exactly what he's doing. But anyway, they, he says, you need to get to Egypt. And I want you to stay there until Herod passes away and passes off the scene. All that was done so one prophecy could be fulfilled. And we see that in verse number 15. He says the prophecy could be fulfilled that God calls his son out of Egypt. So he gets him all the way to Egypt so that he can fulfill that prophecy. But what about this brutality that Herod does? Why did God choose to allow it to happen this way? How do we make sense of that? In verse number 18, we see it. We see this prophecy as well. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be consoled because they are no more. Now, this was a prophecy that was originally given to the children of Israel somewhere between 500 and 400 B.C. when they were being taken off into exile in Babylon again. What happened was uh, the king of Babylon had come in, they sacked Jerusalem, and they took the people out of Jerusalem, and they took them just north of Jerusalem to the city called Ramah. And from Ramah, they were basically tagged like cattle and they were sold off into slavery. Now picture this. Children ripped from the arms of their parents and taken off into slavery to never be seen again. A few hundred years later, we see the same thing. Children being ripped from the arms of their parents in Bethlehem to be slaughtered and never be seen again. Why does God allow that type of carnage? Why does God allow those types of things to take place? In the midst of all of this, Jeremiah gives us a prophecy in chapter 31. He says this, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for the reward of your work will come. This is the Lord's declaration. And your children will return from the enemy's land. There is hope for your future. The hope came this way. Jeremiah gave this prophecy when the children were being taken off to Ramah, or taken off from Ramah to Babylon, never to be seen again by their parents. And God basically said, Give me a chance to work. There will be a great reunion. There will be a great reunion one day, and God will make everything right. That hope was that God was going to bring the people back from exile. And he will send a new and victorious king, which will one day give a new covenant and change their hearts and reconcile them and bring peace on earth. So as those parents in Bethlehem had their children ripped from their hands and killed, the promise of a reunion one day in heaven through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was still lingering out there. As we look at the tragedies of what's taken place in our country and around the world too, senseless things that have taken place in history, the Holocaust, what takes place in our school shootings, Newtown, Connecticut a few years ago, those poor children that were, that were slaughtered. We think about this. The only hope that we can pull from this is that God is still working to make things right and that through him, a reunion will be, will, can take place where no one will ever have to say goodbye again, where death will not take place, where nothing but peace and joy and life and celebration and worship will reign and Satan will not have a say, and evil will be vanquished. Here's what we see here in this text. Here's what we find in this text underlying all of this, is that Herod never had the final word, King Jesus does. 
While Herod may have had his day, he will not have the final word. And friends, I trust you this on the authority of God's word. Trust what God's word says this way. It may look like Satan is having his field day and it may look like evil is winning and it may look like the world is turning its back on God, but that will not have the final word. Jesus Christ is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. He is the Messiah that was sent to save us all and he is setting up his kingdom and what he is doing, he will one day rule and reign over in perfection and we will reign at his side. That's the message of Christmas. That's the message that we get that in the midst of all of this pain in Bethlehem that Herod doesn't get the last word. The Herods of this world do not get the last word. King Jesus does and King Jesus will. Revelation 21.4 tells us that one day God is going to wipe away every tear from the eye. There will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain because the old order of things will have passed away. Never to be raised again. That's why the carol, All Holy Night, it tells us this. Chains shall he break. And in his name all oppression shall cease. A thrill of hope and a weary world rejoices. For yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Because of this there is hope in the midst of hurt. And life in the midst of death. This text gives us a beautiful story. But it also gives us so many beautiful answers to some of life's ugliest and toughest questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? They happen because we're broken by sin. But the beautiful thing is that God loved us enough that he wouldn't leave it broken. He would restore it through his son, Jesus Christ. And that while that brokenness may hurt in this life, brokenness is made right when we come into the presence of Jesus. Like those shepherds and like those wise men did when they were ushered into the presence of Jesus all the suffering, all the wondering, all the hardship, it all made sense. The only way it's going to make sense is when we see Jesus face to face. So as we close this out this morning in this series, this is the real message of Christmas, is that the gospel is for you that are lost without it. And the question this morning for you is, have you received it? Have you come to him? You see, as the as the shepherds were invited to come in Luke, as the magi were invited through the stars and through the prophecy to come to Jesus' presence, we're all invited through the word of God to come to Jesus, but we must come to him. Have you come to him? Have you been saved? Is there a moment that you can go back to in your life when you said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and I realize that all of my best efforts will fall short of God's glory. I need a savior. Are you saved? Do you know him as your savior? If you don't, let today be the day of salvation. And here's the other question that we have to go with as well. We covered a lot today, so let me boil it down for, for you in this. The wise men and the shepherds show us that we don't have to be the right kind of person. We don't have to be smart or perfect. God receives us as we are because he has died to make us into what he wants us to be. God will receive us as we are so that he can make us into what he wants us to be. Are you allowing Jesus to form himself in you? If you're saved, that's the goal of your life, to allow Jesus to be formed in you. As our church, that's our goal as a church. That's our vision, to allow Jesus to be formed in us so that he can be seen by a lost world. Are you getting out of the way and are you allowing him to work? So here's a very interesting thing that took place when the wise men came in. The Bible says that they fell down and they worshiped Jesus. That Greek word there is proskuneo. It's where we get our words prost prostrate. 
prostrate on the ground, face down. It was an act of sincere humility. And for an elite noble from a land far away to come and to humble themselves before a Jewish baby meant I'm giving up everything in deference to you. That's what the Christian life is about, is humbling myself so Christ can be formed in me. The church, that's the question for us today. Will we allow Christ to be formed in us? Will we fall proskuneo down and humble ourselves before him and say, God, whatever it is you need to change in me, do it. Whatever it is you want of me, here it is. Wherever it is you want me to go, I've got my shoes on and I'm ready. Fall on your knees, the song says, and hear the angel voices. Receive him, worship him, and offer your gifts in response. Let us pray.